Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between Chef Dan Barber and Abigail Pogerman, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Dan Barber has changed not only the way people eat, but the way we think about food. In this discussion, recorded March 25, 2015, the acclaimed chef and revolutionary farmer of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns discusses his book, The Third Plate, Field Notes on the Future of Food. I hope you like it. Hello, everyone. Hello, Dan. Dan rode a bike here. He's been in traffic on a bicycle. So thank you for doing this. We have a little history, but we won't go into that. You and I are... Yeah, well, you're a New York kid. Or me and Zabar's. <laughs> yes, Zabar's is here. I love the product placement. Where is, is Zabar's here? Mr. Zabar here? Where is Saul? All right. Thank you. Hello, Saul. Hello, Saul. Saul Let's is, give a round of applause yes, for Zabar's. Yes, I love Saul. Yeah. Um, so speaking of family, let's start with your grandmother before we get yeah. to the book, because she seems kind of like, in a way, where it all began. Uh, yeah, I mean, she, she, she picked out this spot in the Berkshires um, many years ago, a half century ago, um, that became Blue Hill Farm. So without that... Eh. And you worked on the farm? I worked on the farm every summer, yeah. What yeah. did you do? Well, back then, it was uh, we were pasturing cattle for... Um, for beef cattle, so I was moving cows constantly and and haying fields. I was always the whole summer. I was haying fields, stacking hay bales in the wagon, stacking hay field, stacking hay bales in the barn. That was my whole summer. And was this something you actually wanted to do, or you had no choice? In the uh, well, no, I like to say I didn't have any choice. But actually, my grandmother was sort of against my being so involved in the farm because she wanted me to do other activities like play tennis and do things that kids do. And I don't know. Anyway, so I, so, but I really love the farm. I love the farmers. I love the farming. I love the routine of it. I love the physical exertion. I love to sweat like really when I was young. So, so I was very into it. Um, she wasn't like an agricultural person. She was, um, she was an open space person. She wanted the, like, she was, she, she was actually, she was a beautiful woman and she, she, she was an enter, she was like entertained a lot at the house. So she, at the, in the Berkshires, it's, it's on this, the, the house is on this, like sort of the, the top of this hill, Blue Hill Road. And, and, and you sort of overlook this iconic sort of uh, the Berkshire expanse of fields and, and then she wanted cows on the land. And so she really just wanted to be, like, she wanted to have cocktail parties and, and then look out on open space. <laughs> That was her way, and so she had like she was a great foodie. Actually, was incredible. Uh, the by the most uh, memorable person in my life, a person who tasted food and 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 had a comments about it that were so uh, thoughtful. But she was she had no. In, I mean, not that I remember, she had no interest in in environmental issues or right? but but her thing was like open space. And, and was so. she also working the land? Or was no, it- no, 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 no. God, no, no. She was, she was, she was, um, uh, she was an ag. She was a radio personality. And then she became an agent, and she was, she was very involved with Somerset Maugham. She's the first one to to take his books and make them into radio stories. And and the Berkshire uh, Theater yeah. Festival. And the Berkshire Theater. She found found the Berkshire Theater Festival. And she was very into it. So and she was one of the founders of the Berkshire sort of art scene. And so. 
anyway, she's very involved in, in promoting the Berkshires and, 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 and making it a very special place. So what do you remember about food on the farm? Was that, be, was that beginning for you there or was really you were farming, you were working? Yeah, no, it wasn't. I mean, she was a foodie in the sense that she just like really got excited about good food and had an impeccable taste of the world travel. She was dating these men. She was like dating the, the prime minister of India. So she introduced me to Indian food. She was always like the thing, the English food. I was just like, it was incredible. And so I got this, this sort of Catholic, that's probably not the right word to use in our. Because <laughs> it's an interface. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah good. All right, feel free to say it's a sort of Catholic understanding of food that, and taste that that I think stays with me. I mean, all of this is probably unconsciously what inculcated into my into my menu somehow. But uh, no, but, but, you, but yeah. you weren't raised with cooks. I mean, no, you... no, God, no, no. I my my mother died. Was very young, so I I sort of what he what he overcompensated. I was cooking a lot for myself. I was a very lonely guy. <laughs> like, like I, I mean, my my grandmother went out a lot, so in the summer, so I was I was constantly at home, sort of like sort of fetching for myself. My father was worked very hard. He was a businessman, and so I was either going out to dinner with him or or sort of dealing with it on my own. So I you know. did he cook for you? No, anymore? God, yeah, you know, he cooked scrambled eggs. So that's what I remember. That's it's what like my dad a, cooked. Really? Yeah, the terrible, overcooked, rubbery. <laughs> really horrible scrambled eggs. But what I say, I don't think, I don't know if I said this in the book or I've said this before, but I, it's really true is that my, my aunt, who was also involved with the farm, I mean, involved very close to my grandmother and like would cook for me when she came to the farm. Um, and I remember very clearly the sort of, this sort of, uh, this is my, um, what do you call it? My, my epiphany, my food epiphany at a very young age. She cooked, I had strep throat and she cooked uh, a scrambled eggs, but she cooked them over a double boiler. They, they just, you know, you very soft, very loose. And they sort of slid down my throat and I'll never forget it. And, and what I say is like, I'm like, my aunt is incredible. Cooking. It introduced me to what eggs could be, but if it were not for my father, I would not appreciate those eggs. So I thank my father for being such a butcher of a cook that I got to the to the to the wonderment of what good gastronomy can do to an egg. So you go to Tufts. Are you is cooking in the mix through college or is not? I was doing cooking because I I want a little extra money, and uh, I got close with a guy who was also really interested in food, and so we started this like catering company. So like informally like kind of like throwing these parties and making money and all of a sudden. So then, then when I graduated, I, I had nothing. I, I, I thought I was gonna get the scholarship, I didn't get it. And so I just like went out West um, to bake bread because I, uh, I'd cooked in a, a little bit. And I just like, I didn't know how to bake bread. I love bread. So I, I, I went to California to bake. So you worked with Nancy Silver? I worked with the, great, the greatest baker in America at the time uh, and I got fired uh, and very quickly. How come? Uh, because I forgot to salt... Uh, like 1500 pounds of rosemary dough. And, uh, and it, you know, it was, it was five o'clock in the morning and I, and I, I'll never forget the sun coming up and, and, and the, all the rosemary it was like, imagine this, this, the sort of, what do you call Beethoven symphony behind you, the sun's rising and you're looking at the German stoves that have the window in the oven and you see all the 1500 loaves like rise in, 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 in inspiration together. And then fall together like flat as a pancake because there's no salt. And and I was, I was like, I knew I was cooked. Actually, I, I went around the corner and, and I heard Nancy say, I can't let this guy bring me down. Oh and I was God. like, she's talking about me? And, and there, yeah, it was me. So that was So it. that didn't deter you? You weren't? 
Uh, yeah, I got the hell out of baking. <laughs> the next day, actually. And did what? I started just cooking because I knew I could cook okay, and 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 I I kept going, and so I was like, okay, I'll just cook until I figure out what I'm doing for the next thing. But you didn't go to culinary school. I did. I did went to this program at, at Fr- the French Culinary Institute, but I I didn't like it was a long time ago, and and no, I I cooked a lot beforehand, so I wasn't really that formally trained. But then I went to France, and then I got really formally trained. So we are not talking about it like it was this drive, like this passion. It was. No. It wasn't no. a passion. No, 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 no. But no, it's a passion I, for you now. Not really. I mean, in the sense of like, in the sense, I love food, and I, I do actually love the craftsmanship of cooking. And there are moments where I feel exalted in the moment of cooking. Yeah, no, I think that's not an exaggeration. I feel really like there's a, there is transformative in many ways. But the, the the daily thing of it is, it's like writing, no? I mean, I could look at you and it's say, I mean, how do you feel? It's slow, right? I mean, how do you feel about writing the thing with, when you don't have the idea for the thing and you're sitting there with the computer, you've got three hours to file the thing. It's like, that's that's what it's like for me every day. So there, there are moments of pleasure, of, 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 of like satisfaction I and mean, the pleasurable parts of it are few and far between. Yeah. I, it's true about most jobs. No, I mean, uh, you know, it's like. But right? you, it's seen that you're, you're, I think your field is seen as sort of more creative in a way than. No, mine, no, it? no, I don't. I don't. It is right. No, it is seen as more creative, but that's because people don't. No, no one cooks, so they have no idea. <laughs> that's what I think. Um, you said that you're an angry cook. So I, can you, I have a temper. Can you be honest yeah, yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, where'd you find that one from? You know, Did I say I, that in my book? No. No, no, no but you I said it, it, you said it somewhere. No, no, I've said, I, that's true. I opened up, recently I've opened up because I have had a, I have a, I have a daughter, recent daughter, and I, I've been becoming much more honest. And the, whether this is the honest thing is that, like, I just have a temper, terrible temper, terrible under pressure. And You know uh, where you actually said it, and it was funny. Someone yeah. said, do you think that food is love? And you said, well... I hope not because I'm not being very loving <laughs> no, in the kitchen. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm I'm very hard in the kitchen and 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 unreasonable in a ways that I'm that are very unflattering to me. But do you, do you like do you have introspection about that? Do you try to fix that, or do you just say kind of sorry? I thought this is part my... of the, the the work that we're doing <laughs> now. The... It's the work. <laughs> I want to work this through. Yeah, okay. no, I do. I really do want to work this through. But I but to be honest with you, it's like. I, I, have talked about it uh, a little bit recently and I'd say not much better. So I, it's, I should be patient about it. it takes years, but I, I, uh, no, I'm, I don't, I don't really understand where it comes from. Uh, you know, I used to say that, and I, and I do think this is a part of it. I just don't think it's all of it is that I, I worked with some really abusive chefs, like super abusive in, in France back when, you know, there were like no laws against that stuff. And, and even I was post where it was really bad in the seventies and eighties really bad. But I, I, I like. Abusive I in what way? Just, just physically, physically even really? like emotionally. Oh my God, just the worst. And that was sort of the, that was the oxygen of the kitchen, you know, back then it still is in certain kitchens, but much less so because they, because they've cracked down a lot, but, but yeah. So, so I like to think, you know, I, my easy excuse is like, well, that's my language and I know no other, but I, it's just crazy. I mean, I know I, I worked with a chef, David Boulay, who's still we got amazing restaurants here in New York and, and this is 20 years ago. And he worked for some of the single most abusive people in the last half century. Uh, and, and, you know, he never raised his voice, but what he said to me was, you know, I, he, he confronted an outburst by the greatest chef of our generation named Joel Robuchon and, and, and Robuchon was, is famously terrible. And, and he said, you know, I, I had this encounter. I saw this thing he did with this, I mean, he described the scene, which is just gross. And, and he said, you know, I just said to myself, I never want to be that kind of chef. And, and he said that that day I never yelled again. And, and 
I wish I could have had that kind of experience or that perspective or whatever it is, but I, I, I don't. And I, so I yell a lot and I, but the stakes are high. I mean, the tension's high. It seems like it's not like you're inventing this. There's clearly some, some kind of perfect storm. No, But my, my point is that, that there are great chefs who who don't succumb to it. So it's obviously not a necessity. And, and what about the what about the trend of having open kitchens? Does that affect? Do you think? What, well, I don't have open kitchens, but I, I think if I were an open kitchen, I'd be in trouble because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about the kitchen that you built. For those who haven't been lucky enough to go to Stone Barns, um, and I haven't yet, it's really like you built and you built sort of your dream place. Did you not? I mean, what what's the philosophy behind it? And with Blue Hill, like how would you describe it to someone who doesn't know what it is? Well, the, the Stone Barns Farm, I, did, I didn't, I mean, Mr. Rockefeller built it. I should be very clear about this. Uh, uh, Mr. Rockefeller built me my dream kitchen. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, the kitchen it did, in the sense that that it's in the middle of a farm. So it's in, in a working farm that's uh, uh, creative and, and, and visionary. And so I get to use these products that you know, are, are in my mind, the future of good food. And so I'm, I'm a very, very fortunate chef and, you know, Mr. Rockefeller sort of touched me and, and, and my brother, who's my business partner, my sister-in-law, who's, who's also my business partner and designer. And, and, and we just were, you know, we've taken that and, and run with it, but really it's, it's about Mr. Rockefeller wanting a, a, a restaurant near his home and a place that showed off what could be the potential of, of, of great food. So he just called you up one day? No, well, he came to eat a few times and, and he liked the food for sure. But I actually, I think more than the food, uh, and this isn't false modesty, I think he, he much more liked the, the family dynamic. He's really very much a family person. And he, he, you know what he said to me is funny. It's, I was just thinking about this the other day. He said to me, we, the, the, the first initial costs for the project were like $8 million. And so it ended up costing $80 million. Uh, wow. Yeah. No, it's just, it, you know, it was, a, it was, a, the scope is, was definitely changed, but actually not by that much. And so at $80 million. And so we were sitting at dinner and this is right before the project opened. He said, you know, if you think about the costs of 80 million over the course of 250 years, it's not that much money. <laughs> wow. And I said to myself, of course, only a Rockefeller would think like, <laughs> but then I, then actually in the years since then, it's been about 11 years since that conversation. And he's still, he's a hundred, hundred years old this year. What I've realized as I've gotten to know him more is that, and I've just gotten older, maybe potentially more mature is that, that there are a lot of people who, who could think that way and don't. Um, and he's a very special person. And in the sense of, of where he fits in the, 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 the sort of long view of things. I mean, the Rockefellers have always done that. So, so that's, it's sort of in his DNA, I guess, but it was very interesting for me. My, my knee jerk reaction was like, Oh, you're a Rockefeller. You can't afford to think that way. And then the maturity is sort of like, well, there are a lot of Rockefellers who absolutely don't have that perspective. So I'm, I'm really grateful to him. Does he eat there? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great eater, great drinker. <laughs> the man has genes that I could only dream about. What do people do because they want to drink there? The New Yorkers who go, do they do they get Uber and to pick them up or how This did... is a very interesting question. I don't know. <laughs> as long as they buy some wine, I don't really care. No, I, I know though people take the train. A lot of people take uh, cars up there and, and then there are a lot of like designated drivers. So yeah, I've never been asked that before. But so. what about the, um, the philosophy behind it? If you were going to sort of say to somebody why it's a different experience than any restaurant, in the city. Well, Aside physically it's farm. a difference because you're in the middle of a farm. So it's a, so farm to table is a, is a movement that's catching sort of fire or has been catching fire. So this is, you know, 
what is it? It's a table in the middle of a farm. So in that sense, it's a bit different. Uh, but but really, it's about it's about supporting this sort of community around preserving open space that dials back to my grandmother. And that's what Mr. Rockefeller wanted too. Very much in this in the in the way my grandmother did. He didn't he didn't want to he didn't want to pass away and see this zone for fifty two housing lots, which it was. Uh, and it's thirty five miles from where we're sitting, so it's it's extraordinary to pull off the highway and 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 sort of drive through Vermont is what he, he his family has preserved. So it's this extraordinary uh, 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 preservation undertaking. But then at the same time, it's also like a look into the future of of where we could go with food uh, if we want to, and and if we have the the drive and the and the knowledge and the passion for it. So that's what I'm I'm you know that's why I wrote the book and why I'm involved with this. Do you sleep there or do you come never? Up? I've never slept. I've slept when we opened the restaurant. I slept on the on the banquets a lot, but but no, I I I make a point to come home every night and and I drive there every morning. And and when I was writing the book, I was doing very very long days. But I've I've sort of now these last two weeks I've been in New York quite a bit for this special project that we just did in New York, and I this is the longest I've been away from Stone Barns from from commuting, and um, and I kind of miss it weirdly. Um, because I've it's gotten so into my routine to, to I listen to books on tape on the way up and back. You drive? And, yeah, I drive. Early? I drive. Yeah, early. I, I mean, when I was writing the book, I was leaving it, you know, before six, before seven in the morning. I was getting there uh, by seven thirty, and and uh, and I would leave. I leave very late at night. Uh, and then Blue Hill gets you when or does Blue it? Hill gets me on the days off, and and some nights depending on who's around and what's and the season. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I live right by the restaurant, so my days off, I kind of go over there and. But but I have had people who are part of Blue Hill, New York, for 15 years since we've opened, so it it runs very well. Um, and and not that Stone Barns doesn't run well without me. It's just it's a huge undertaking, and so I'm we're we're more plugging in our time. So so what gave you the idea to write the book? Uh, well, I I you know I started out because I wanted to be a writer. So that's that's the that's the I mean I I was like writing a novel when I was baking bread and and and. The novel wasn't going so well. The bread wasn't going so well either. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I I was hoping to like be a writer, and so in many ways, the book is sort of the culmination of what I've always wanted to do. And I should just say because and this is not a plug, I thought it was going to be work to get through because it's large and it was it's like a detective novel. It literally reads with so much suspense, and the characters are are incredible. And I think one of one of the things that struck me is that there really are great stories. You know, when I worked at sixty Minutes, um, the executive producer Don Hewitt always said that these stories should work on radio. Don Hewitt had a big influence on my life because my father was a big fan of his. Really? Yeah. No, and what he said, it does. So not that you knew Don Hewitt. I didn't. I, I don't. But uh, you know, like what you said is exactly what was always in my mind. Is he? It was. This is what I read. So tell me if it's true. He said, you know, I like the story, but does it play to the to the forty year old couple that's sitting in Iowa? And that's what I was thinking when I was writing the story. Is like if it doesn't play to the people who are forty some odd years old in Iowa, that's you know disconnected from them. That, I mean, back then, that's actually it's not a very kind thing to say about Iowa in the sense that, but <laughs> but 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 the point back then anyway was like, does this is this relatable to the average right. person? And and that's what I I really had to like do some editing for. But that was in the back of my mind, Don Hewitt. He's in the back of my mind. My father was a, a big fan of his, and I was because we grew up on sixty minutes. I mean, sixty minutes was was you know, I'm sure for everyone here. But it's sixty, yeah. you know, Sunday night Chinese food, sixty minutes, <laughs> and Kol Nidre night. I mean, there's yes. not there's not a lot else that right. was like sacrosanct. <laughs> but that was it. Yeah. So the third plate, can you define it for those of us 
those people who haven't heard what that actually means. Yeah, I've, I've like I've been asked this obviously so many times since the book came out last year, and I've I don't I've yet to develop. Have you honed your answer. Oh, a yellow, an elevator response is what I'm supposed to have. Actually, I said, I just said that to someone, a very smart person who's actually in the book, Wes Jackson. And he said, you know, next time you get asked that, tell them you want to take the stairs instead. <laughs> that was very smart. I never thought of that. Take the stairs instead. You can take the stairs. Okay. Well, I'll, t- I'll do this. I'll run up the stairs. The first plate is, is it defines, so to understand the third plate is sort of the first plate is this, this what iconic American uh, uh, sort of plate of food. Which would be protein centric. With that, yeah, I'm, criti- I'm critical of the way. It's passive. Yeah, what, yeah, passive. Exactly. Mean? I was going to use that word. Thank you for for You're reading welcome. the book so carefully. But uh, that, that's that's the word. Is that we, you know, as much as this has been an exciting social movement and it has some some legs, I think the the way we're practicing it is troubling. Um, and and I'm saying that from a guy who's been a proponent of practicing it this way. So I I like I'm. What am I? This is a mini culpa, uh, but it, but it's a, it's a, it's it's one I I I end up writing a lot about in the book, which is that uh, if we're going to cherry pick ingredients and 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 go to the farmers market and say I want that zucchini and then you know that that eggplant and then that tomato and go go back to my restaurant and call myself a farm table chef, which I've been doing for, for a long time actually, uh, you know, I calling myself not just the farm table but a hero of the farm table movement. It's crazy. It makes no sense. It, it doesn't, you know, it's a better transaction than buying from, I guess, the big food chain. But really, it's like at the end of the day, it, it, I don't know that it's truly sustainable. And and but explain and, why. Yeah, well, explain why clear. because uh, thank you for uh, you're right. I should explain why. Uh, that's when it comes down to like sort of the nuts and bolts of farming that we are so far removed from. Um, but I'll give you the, the the example. It takes just a minute to unpack this. But but I came to 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 the sort of like sort of grand epiphany for the book when I when I was serving this bread at the restaurant um, uh, that was incredible. I mean, it did, it was this bread made from emmer wheat, which is a, a very old biblical wheat, has incredible flavor and and. We served this, this slice of bread and people like just went crazy over it because it was 100% all wheat. It's the kind of thing where like you wanted to, to sort of sell your firstborn for another slice. You know, I mean, it's jaw droppingly delicious. And I was like, this is a perfect place to start the book because here, here I could go to the farmer and trace the recipe for this and like and dig deep into farm to table what it means. And so I, I went to the farmers, this farmer, this guy Klaus Martins, who ends up becoming the hero of the book. Um, actually, he's kind of. He's sort of the donkey of the book because he carries the story. It was a wonderful luck that I had to have such an interesting character just carry the story. And he comes in and out of the book the entire time. But it starts with my going there and standing in the middle of his 2,000 acres to research the recipe for this incredible wheat that everybody wants to kill for. And and I'm looking, standing in the middle of 2,000 fields at 2,000 acres, and I don't see any wheat. And I look around, look around, look around. What did I see? I saw barley. I saw buckwheat. I saw millet. I saw leguminous crops like like cowpeas and, and kidney beans. I saw all these traditional cover crops like vetch and, and clover and all this stuff. But I, I didn't see hardly any wheat in the, in the entire expanse around me. And, and what I learned is that Klaus was growing all of these other lowly, uncoveted, unmarketable for, to the most, for the most part crops because he was rotating these crops to get the fertility in the soil to grow the wheat that I wanted for my bread and others wanted for for their kitchens. And so in other words, he was sort of, sort of the entire farm was sort of sunk costs to get the soil ready for the thing that he made money on. 
And so it was like, you know, it was like that moment where you're like, I'm the emperor with no clothes. Here I am saying I, I'm, I'm the farm to table, you know, whatever, uh, uh, ad, uh, leader, advocate, whatever. And, and yet I'm supporting nothing from the farm except for the wheat crop. Uh, and so what I did when I returned to the restaurant is realized I got I to gotta buy all this other stuff and I got to incorporate all this other stuff into my cooking and, and make it a part of my everyday menu. And that's what I actually ended up making a rotation risotto, which is still on my menu today, which is all those grains and, and leguminous crops and actually cover crops too that I just mentioned and dozens more that are on a, on a rotating basis. I call it rotation risotto because people have a, a nice association with risotto. Klaus, this farmer, doesn't grow rice. We don't grow rice in the Hudson Valley for the most part. So, so this is a uh, this is a risotto, uh, riceless risotto. But it's all these other delicious grains that we just don't eat. And so I made it into risotto. And what when I, when I was walking through the dining room early in the the, the time that we introduced this, and, the, and somebody asked, uh, sort of obnoxiously, like, "What the hell is a rotation risotto for da 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 amount of money?" And you know, New Yorkers are so. And so the the waiter I fielded it very well. He said. It's really like it's a nose to tail. It's a nose to tail. It's eating nose to tail of the whole farm. That was perfect because we all know nose to tail eating now. It's the nose to tail of the animal. You know, you you incorporate all the parts of the animal, not just the loin and the tenderloin. But we forget often about the nose to tail of the farm, and so which is to say the entire of the farm. What are the crops that make those tomatoes and zucchini and eggplant taste good? Well, there's a whole slew of them. But do we eat those leguminous crops? Do we buy those beans from the farmer? Do we buy the little shoots from the from the cover crops? Do we buy the the sometimes the rye or or, or grains that those farmers have to negotiate into the soil to get the fertility to get you your tomatoes? No, there's no market for those. Those are dumped into bag feed. So everything when I was standing in the middle of that field, all went into bag feed. And Klaus, this farmer, the hero of my book, lost money on on dumping it into bag feed essentially. Uh, and so what I was asking him to do by, by glorifying his wheat is do all of these rotations, lose money, and then, and then make, you know, basically break even in the end of the day on this wheat, which he was charging me a lot of money for. It was a crazy system. And that's what we all do by supporting the farmer's market in the way that we do, which is cherry picking ingredients instead of thinking about it from a systemic point of view. A systemic point of view is a cuisine. It's to put the pieces together. You know, so, so it, you know, uh, Japan, um, uh, you know, is a rice culture, uh, but to get the rice, you need to grow buckwheat uh, because buckwheat into rice is a classic rotation crop. Buckwheat breaks up disease cycles. It gives you the carbon that you need to grow the rice. Well, what did the Japanese do with the buckwheat? They didn't feed it to, to, to pigs, which is what we do. They created soba noodles. And so the, the culture of eat of, the, of what it means to be Japanese, D.Y. rice, but it's also eat, eat soba. So you weren't allowed to just eat the rice. You had to eat the soba. And that's what we need to do more of. And that's the third play. I'm sorry for the long answer, no, but a good answer. it takes good a long answer. time to unpack this no, stuff. No, I don't. Which is why it took me 12 years to write the book. 12 years. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, 
or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabars ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabars any day of the week. Before we leave Klaus, since it's Passover Friday, yeah. you talk about him and matzah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, first He's of all, not Klaus, a Jew. What? Klaus, Klaus is a wandering Jew. Oh, is he? I, I mean, I think so. I think he was lost somewhere, but he, he <laughs> has such respect for the, for the, you know, it's funny. I, I have, I had a section of the book that, that was several hundred pages long that got cut. I mean, the book is already very long, as you know. But it reads quick. Thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you. Did you hear that? It's quick. But I had a I had a section about the about matzah, which I I, I with a huge section so about sad. about uh, Orthodox um, uh, kosher matzah, which is just is an amazing experience. And I hope to use the material someday. But it was Klaus, this farmer, this hero of my book, just ended up adopting these these Orthodox rabbis to grow a spelt for matzah. Uh, kosher spell for matzah, and, and, and it's just an incredible story of his respect for the Jewish religion. Uh, you know, as you say, Klaus is no Jew, um, uh, but he he learned the Jewish religion. And what he came away with, and what I came away with from listening to Klaus, is that Judaism is an agriculture religion uh, from from A to Z. It's all about agriculture. Uh, all the laws, uh, the kosher laws, the the everything. And so we, now that we're on Passover, we can just say that that um, you know what I experienced in this the, the 400 pages that was cut from the book was was trying to 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 grow uh, a spelt for the matzahs that uh, was kosher for Passover in the in the highest law. And and all these rabbis want, wanted to work. With, Klaus is famous. I mean, across across the world, actually, increasingly because he's so sensitive to the, the, the religious dictates of what it means to grow kosher. Uh, and, and he believes in it. And he believes in it not because he's deeply religious in a Jewish, Jewish sense. He's deeply religious because he's discovered that those laws actually produce the best wheat. And so he gave me the example, and I experienced this myself as we we went through the spelt field with the Orthodox rabbi on a on a day in July that was probably I don't know 106 degrees in the field, and the rabbi was in full garb, and I I was ready to die, and and we we were on the combine, but we were walking the field because the rabbi was was stopping uh, the the combine with any indication of garlic in the spelt uh, field, uh, and and the presence of garlic. Is an indication that uh, well anyway Klaus told me that so 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 the Talmudic law is you're not allowed to have any wild garlic in the spelt otherwise considered a treif right that's the word treif that's the word I was looking for treif uh, so he he the the rabbi on both the two of them both sides of the combine walk the combine now if you're doing a field that's 150 acres and you're walking 170 degree he is not no joke uh, it's a big deal but. But you're slowing down the combine, the tractor, to look for garlic because if you if there are any garlic in there, you're you're the whole harvest is is the trafe, right? So you lose the whole harvest. So so what Klaus discovered is that the the wild garlic in the field is a is a indication that the soil is deficient in sulfur, um, and the the way he got around slowing down the combine is to rotate his crops in such a way that he got sulfur in the field. And, and he got the presence of wild garlic was diminished by like, a, by like 150% over 10 years. And so the rabbis love him. He did this in throughout the entire, the entirety of the, the harvest. But what he, was, what he learned is that each of these laws 
that create treif spelt, for instance, is, is, is based on the soil being deficient in certain nutrients. And what that teaches us is that actually kosher law was really about nutrition and about getting the best possible. And by the way, the best possible nutrition is the best possible flavor. I know that now as a chef, but it's, it's absolutely uh, uh, uniform law, more uniform than kosher actually, is that if you have the most nutrient density, you have the best flavor. And that's what Jewish law, that's what kosher law is all about. So Klaus was motivated because he had such respect for the Jew, Jewish religion but and the, and the laws that are associated with that, but also because he realized that every time he followed the laws, he got better soil, and ultimately a better crop. It was a very fascinating part. Anyways, why all why the is book. the bread, like his wheat, when you described it, I was obviously salivating, but why is it it's transcendent? It's 100% transcendent because it listens to what the soil is telling Klaus it needs to grow great wheat. So all of those crops that I looked at, I mean, you could look at it in the Talmudic sense, you could look at it in just the sense of like, I'm trying, he, Klaus, is trying to get the most fertility into the soil to get his wheat to grow healthy and with the most, most nutrient density. And when wheat has that, it speaks to us through flavor. Truly, it speaks to us through flavor. Do you and put butter on it? <laughs> you don't need it. butter on my bread, really. I mean, I like butter on bread too, but but the beauty of the of the wheat is that you, you end up realizing that wheat has flavor. Uh, really, has really expressive flavor um, if you if you bake it right. Uh, but even if you're a home cook, I mean, if you have whole grains that are grown in the right soil, it's an incredible. It's it's the difference between it's a different. What's the difference between is like Tropicana frozen orange juice and a fresh squeezed. It's a huge difference. You had a chef at Stone Barns who was really struggling to get the perfect. Was it brioche? Yeah. Yeah. And and it was hard. Yeah. What were what were the failures? The failures were were well, there are many, but but main we, so the we wheat's were, not enough. Yeah, the wheat's not enough. I mean, you need some culinary application. The main, and one of the main things is you need to to mill your own wheat, because it, because as you go through all the things that Klaus goes through to get his soil in the right way, and then you get the Orthodox rabbis to, to do the harvest. All of a sudden, it's harvested, and and the the step in between harvest. And, and baking is a huge one, which is like, you need to mill it. So like we had to buy a mill and, and, and mill the wheat fresh, just in the same way that you would squeeze a fresh squeezed orange juice. You, all the flavor is in the freshness. And we, we've removed that from our culture. We, 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 all of our wheat is pre-milled, it's commodified. It's milled somewhere else and that sends to us and it's, and it's shelf stable. So even if you're buying whole wheat or you're buying the best wheat in the world, for the most part, you're going to a supermarket and buying it on a shelf. Well, well actually we think about wheat in the wrong way. You shouldn't be able to go to a market and buy and supermarket and buy it on a shelf. You should be buying it in a refrigerator or you should be grinding it yourself because it's, a, it's, a, it's alive, it's a seed. And and all of its nutrition and flavor is in the, the the fresh grinding of that of that of that seed, and we've totally divorced ourselves from that. By the way, seventy years ago, a hundred years ago, we ground all of our wheat, most of our wheat. It was really in the invention of the roller mill that got us away from from extracting this little germ, which is in the in the seed. It's about five to ten percent of the seed, but it's where all the oils are and all the flavors, the not, flavonoids. We're not going to ground our own wheat. Why not? Uh, you know what? Okay. Let me just push back on you, uh, you okay. New York Times reporter with the, the, the say it all. Okay, so let me just say this. What if we were sitting here in 1990 and I said, let me just tell you something about the coffee bean. Really extract the greatest flavor from the coffee bean. You gotta grind your own coffee bean. And you looked at me and you said, there's never gonna be a place on every corner of every block in Manhattan that grinds their coffee beans basically to order. Starbucks. 
right? Now, somehow we figured out that that germ in the coffee bean is pretty important to our morning ritual because it produces a better cup of coffee. But, but, this, but it's not just the same thing with wheat. It's 10 times that with wheat, 10 times that. So I'm trying to launch a, a line with Mr. Zabar for Grain Box. I'm convinced. Thank you for let's do it. I want to talk about foie gras. Yes. Um, and that brings the Jews in too. Just by Again, the Jews. The, the, Again the, the, the Jews. There's a, there's a through line. I'm That's, so happy to be at the JCC because you're right. My book is a Jewish it's a surprise. Book. It's a surprising connection. Yes. You say the Jews invented foie gras. Yes, they did. So I want you to take me to Spain because it's an amazing story. Yeah, no, I the short story of that is that I just happened to meet a goose whisperer who was who was who was developing. So the thing about foie gras is that we, we the debate is like, do you force is force feeding a duck or a, a goose uh, uh, inhumane? And actually, it was a big debate in the culinary. You probably haven't heard of it. In the culinary was a huge debate. And then, and can you just and, explain for those who don't know what it actually, how foie gras is normally? I mean, foie gras is normally, a, you know, a duck or goose is force fed for several weeks, a ton of, of grain just funneled down its throat and, uh, and, and it plumps up very fast and the liver takes on a, a tremendous amount of, of, of calories and fat. And that's what foie gras is. Um, but, Animal activists and many others think this is just a ridiculous, you know, it's like boxing. It's like it, it should be in the history books and, and and whatever. And so actually boxing is probably a bad analogy. What's the thing that's, you know, I don't know, it's worse than that. It's gladiators or whatever. It's just like, it's just like we, should, we should be through this because we know that it's torturous to animals. There's a big debate about that. Anyway, while this whole debate is going on, it's outlawed in California, by the way, you can't produce far in California, it's outlawed. While the whole thing is going on, I heard about a guy Who's been who's been producing foie gras without gavage, without force feeding since 1812? So I went over. Thankfully, a friend of mine at Time Magazine was doing a story, and I went over with her. And and there he was, this guy Eduardo Souza, who 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 has been tricking his geese into gorging, which is their natural instinct in the fall, by by sort of not feeding them a lot during the winter and during the during the summer, and then providing them a landscape like sort of the Garden of Eden, where when the weather turns cold, they gorge naturally and they fatten up their liver and they produce this foie gras that's just like you know it's that thing of the wheat. It's just like this other dimension of flavor that's just amazing. So I became a believer. I spent you know I was a very huge skeptic and then I became a total convert and and Eduardo becomes this character in the book incredible. that's just yeah incredible so when you arrived remember. he was he was on his belly taking pictures yeah he's in love with his geese he they're his kids and 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 he spends all day with them and so I arrived and he was on his belly taking pictures and for a photo album that he uses of his geese but uh but his whole thing was you respect the geese and during if they're its happy, lifetime if they're, they're happy gonna... The, the, and about, talk, talk about the fence, which is also interesting. So, so he doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't, so he has, he had a fence around them and, and like, I, it was the weirdest fence I've ever seen in my life. And, and what he described as I kept asking him was that, was that it's a fence that, that is not electrified on the inside. It's only electrified on the outside. So it's to prevent pre predators from coming in, but the geese are free to leave. And, and sometimes they do, but most of the time they really don't because they've got plenty to eat. So when I said, I think I said this in the book, like, you know, isn't the DNA of a, of a goose to fly, you know, south in the winter and, you know, north in the summer, he interrupted me already. He said, no, the DNA of a goose is to be happy and well-fed and it's here on the farm. So they have no reason to leave. <laughs> So do you serve his foie gras? No, I don't because he, he has so so little production uh, that that he's already way sold out. And in fact, this I wrote this seven years ago, and now with global warming, which is affecting 
his geese vary dramatically actually because they're the the shift from summer or fall into winter is is not as severe as it used to be and the geese are less inclined to kickstart this this gorging and so it's a big problem uh for him and his businesses is in trouble but he also though said that his foie gras wasn't good enough for chefs yeah he he i i i just was so dumbfounded when i tasted it because i've never tasted to say that it was the best foie gras of my life would be to say that it, it was not it's not accurate because i've never it was that thing of another dimension it was off the charts so i said to him how can you have the best worker in the world. None of these famous chefs who are in Spain and all around Europe and America uh, who would just just flip over this. And he said, you know, chefs don't deserve my foie gras. And, when, when, and that became like this thing with me that I was trying, why don't chefs deserve his foie gras? And what with the answer to it, he speaks in like kind of the Oracle of Delphi. Usually it's like sort of questions with answers, but, it, but and, and it's yours sort of, I have to investigate to find out the answer. And the answer was that chefs manipulate the foie gras too much and they, they, they don't do justice so what his point is like, it's the perfect natural food and you don't need to do anything with it. And actually he hardly added salt and pepper, which is like no seasoning. Like when I ate at the restaurant, I was tasting all these things, but it was because like Klaus, he was, he was moving in around different fields in his, in his, uh, in the Dehesa and in this part of Spain, that's rich agriculture history. And so you added this incredible flavor and you didn't need to do anything more with it. And he was offended by chefs manipulating his ingredients. So, so do you use foie gras? Well, I, I, do I, I don't use foie gras anymore in the restaurant because of my experience with him. Um, uh, not because I have a problem with the ethics of it, actually. Uh, I'm sort of on the fence about that, but I, I'm, I'm more just like I've tasted the, 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 gra- the Holy Grail and, you know, why, why settle for second class? When you were in Spain, is it the Dehesa that you describe? Yeah. It's sort of the metaphor for the book. Yeah. You had this perch and you're looking out and you saw, saw the integration of everything, the relationships, which really comes through just how Thank much- you, because nobody said that to me in the, the, the year that I've had interviews. This no. is a great interview. No. Thank you. You're I don't welcome. know that I'm giving great answers. It's a great interview. You're, you're, you're but you're right. I stood on a rooftop in the Dehesa and I looked around uh, and I saw, you know, I was, what I saw was just the, this, this, this agricultural landscape that was completely and seamlessly integrated. And, and it was like an old McDonald's farm that you see in picture books. You know, you saw cows here and pigs here and crops here and da, da, da. And, and, and it was as if you were looking at one farm, but actually you kind of were. And that was sort of my point of this was like, we need to get away from this thing of like, of farmers that do tomatoes really well and farmers that do grass-fed beef really well and farmers that do this really well because it's, it's, it's nuts. It's it really, it's, it's taking advantage of, of a natural ecosystem uh, to its best advantage. And that's where the best flavor comes, which is no surprise that the extra Madoran cuisine is, is based on the landscape. It's some of the best Spanish cuisine uh, there is. And, it, and it's remained pure because the, the land is so poor and it's about the negotiation the peasants had to make with the landscape to, to eke out survival, which is actually the story of every landscape in the world, except for America's, where you're in this negotiation to, to, to eke out with the land and survive, make it nutritious, make it delicious, otherwise it doesn't get passed down. That's the story of, of, of agriculture, of farming, is, is deliciousness. If it, if it wasn't delicious, it wasn't passed along. And so uh, they're right. They became a metaphor for the book because I realized that we just don't have that in America. We don't we were, were land of, of abundance. We always were. And, and as I looked back on this historical text, I saw that, that from day one, we were considered 
gross in our wastefulness, in our use of resources, in our disgusting uh, plates of food that Europeans were offended by. And, and that was based on, 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 on rich soil that America had and, and temperate climates and rainfall. And, and we've never really actually left that history, which is, which is amazing to think But Part of our, our, when we talk about the bad food culture of America, it, it dates back to abundance. And, and we just never were forced into what Europeans and peasant Chinese and peasant Indian, the peasant, everyone had to deal with. And from that hardship and struggle came beautiful cuisine that's lasted thousands of years. We don't have that history. And, and what we need to do is figure out how to inculcate a pattern of eating that, that really reflects the landscape and not the whims of the day, the paleo diet, the juicing, the thing, the whatever, the, the, the wet finger up to the, to the prevailing winds of the diet. It's, it's not what the land can produce over time. Uh, and that's the true lesson of, of, of these cuisines and the true definition of sustainability. It's how do we last for not this generation, but for our children's children? And uh, that's gonna take some, some more, some, some thinking about agriculture that goes beyond cherry picking at the farmer's market. We gotta put the pieces together. I promised Dan that he would get back to the restaurant at 845. Yeah. I want to thank you all for coming and thank, thank you. you, Dan. Thank so you much. very much. Thank you. This was fantastic. That was Dan Barber talking to Abby Pogerman. Our podcasts are produced as always by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Music is by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes. 